Well, good morning, everyone. It is uh, Friday, October the 11th, and um, I'm sitting here in my office, and we are re-recording uh, last week's uh, podcast. Um, we had some technical uh, difficulties uh, recording it live, and so we apologize for the delay in, in getting it uh, posted, uh, but we'll get that done here pretty soon. If you got your Bibles and uh, you'd like to follow along, we'll be in Job uh, 32 to 37. We'll be covering six chapters today. And the title of our lesson is A New Argument. A New Argument. Now, it turned out that uh, the week before I was gone, uh, and uh, Chuck Coburn, Pastor Chuck, sat in for me. And I want to just tell him I appreciate him doing that. So I wanted to take a quick review, if I could, of, uh, of where we are as we come to chapter uh, 32. So as we all remember uh, from chapter 4 to 31, Job is debating with his three friends, uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and they are uh, conversing or debating or talking about the meaning of suffering. And if you'll remember, Job's three friends had a a particular theology of suffering that they felt was absolute. Eliphaz uh, talks about this in Job 4, 7 through 9, and he said this, As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the, the same. In other words, basically their philosophy of life, and they saw it as an absolute philosophy, was you reap what you sow. Now, in our lesson we tried to put this in a picture, um, and at the top of our uh, at the top of our, our little PowerPoint thing was a title called God's Justice, and <clears throat> there was an arrow pointing to a box on the left and an arrow pointing to a box on the right. The box on the left is ra- labeled righteousness, and the box on the right is labeled sin. Their view is that God's justice requires him or obligates him to reward righteousness and punish sin. So in the righteousness box, you see things like health, prosperity, and peace. In the sin box, you see things like sickness, poverty, and adversity. It's what's called retributive justice, that everybody gets what they deserve. And God's justice requires him to do that. That was their view of suffering, their their theology or philosophy of life, you might say. Now, Eliphaz did admit in chapter 5 that sometimes suffering is chastisement or discipline from God, and it could be good for us. But in their eyes, extreme suffering, like the ones that, that, like the suffering that Job was going through, just could not be explained this way. In, in Job 22, 5, uh, they said to him, or Eliphaz said to him, Is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without end? See, according to Eliphaz, extraordinary suffering like Job cannot be the result of uh, chastisement or discipline. It can only be explained as punishment for grievous sin. Now, Job defends himself against this in two ways. The first thing he says, look, that's not always true, right? He said, look around the world. We've seen people where, that are wicked that prosper. 
and we've seen people that who are righteous and they suffer. So you, you can't put God in a box. It just doesn't always work that way. That might be the rule of thumb, but there are exceptions, and um, and he shows evidence for that. So that's the first way that he defends himself. The second way he defends himself is by maintaining his integrity. He says, "Look, I haven't done anything that bad, right? I'm not. I'm not. I'm a righteous man. I, I show me my sin, right? He 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 just says over and over, that's not who I am. So." In the end, the theology of the three friends is unsustainable. As a result, their speeches become repetitive. They just say the same thing over and over again. They become much more hostile. They begin to accuse Job of things that just are not true. And they become shorter and shorter as the conversation comes to a close. So by the time we get to the end of chapter 31, the friends' argument have come to an end. And as I said earlier, they're... This rigid theology of retributive justice, where everybody gets what they deserve, just it just cannot explain Job's suffering. Now, at the same time, Job has his own issues to deal with, because here's the thing we have to understand. Job believes in the same law. Job believes in this same standard of retributive justice. In Job 16.4, he said this, I could also speak as you do. If you were in my place, I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. In other words, Job is saying, look, if, if the shoe was on the other foot, I'd be saying the exact same thing. Because, you know, he believed the exact same thing for years and years. The difference is that now that it's happening to him, he knows he's innocent. So Job's problem is that he cannot make his suffering fit with the justice of God. Let's go back to that picture that we had earlier with God's justice uh, at the top and an arrow pointing to righteousness and an arrow pointing to sin. Well, see, in the righteousness box, Job believed that God rewarded uh, righteousness with things like health and prosperity and adversity. But in his case, in that box, now he sees sickness and poverty and adversity. So if we go back to the top, his problem is God's justice. What's going on here? Is God just arbitrary in his ways? Does he just kind of dole out rewards and suffering in, in just this willy-nilly kind of way? You see, that's the issue that Job is struggling with, and, and, and he has no answer for that. He has, he has really no idea why all of this is happening. Now, in the midst of all this, all of these men do agree on one thing. And that is that God rules the affairs of men, and he does so wisely. In fact, you know, we mentioned this early on. One thing they agree on, God is doing this. They never argue that point. This is God, and they're right. The God is allowing this. They, they, never, they never attribute this to, to, to Satan or the prince of the powers of the air or anything like that. They all agree this is God, and they all agree, for example, in chapter 28, they all agree that God rules the affairs of men, and he does so wisely. They never, they never doubt that. But as to why the righteous suffer, they just don't have any answer. Now listen, it would be possible for you and I to live the rest of our lives at that level of understanding. In fact, I think many Christians do that. You could say, look, 
Yes, I believe God rules over the world and controls what happens. I believe that God is just and wise. Therefore, though th- there, although there may be things that look arbitrary in this life, I-, I believe that all wrongs will be made right in the age to come. So I'm just going to trust God, and I, even though I cannot understand his ways. Now listen, there is absolutely nothing wrong with that statement. Everything about that statement is is good, and everything about that statement is true. But here's the thing. The book of Job does not stop in chapter 31. So evidently, there's not only more for that God wants Job to see about suffering, there's more that he wants you and I to see about suffering. And so we pick up in chapter 32 with a man named Elihu. Let's let's read Job 32, 1 through 5. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. And he burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Now, what do we know about Elihu? Well, the first thing we know is he's young. Well, how young is he? Well, remember that Job will live another 140 years after this is all over. So, if you go back to our introduction, we we really believe that this is happening around the time of the patriarchs, where men live probably anywhere from 180 to 210 years old. So, Job could be anywhere from, say, uh, 40 to 70 years old. So, even though Elihu thinks they're old men, um, they're, they're not really that old. And Elihu himself is probably fairly young. He could possibly be even a a teenager. Another thing we know about him is he is an angry young man. Um, in fact, it points out four times in there that he is angry. Now, where he comes from, we don't know. You know, was he? Has he been? Did he come with the three friends? Has he been there all along? And they just didn't mention him. That's possible. Um, we do know that that he's been sitting there listening to them. Because um, several times he will refer to their words, what you've said, you said this. So, so he's been there listening to these these conversations, but we just don't know. Uh, other, like he just kind of comes out of out of nowhere. Now, here's the really interesting thing to me about Elihu. In studying for this lesson, I ran across a uh, a story from a pastor's conference uh, on the Book of Job. So there was this this conference that that was held on the book of Job, where they invited pastors. So these are these are men of God. These are preachers and teachers, men that are committed to the book of Job. And they actually came to learn, okay, well, just, you know, what can, just to talk about Job and learn how they can better teach and preach the book of Job. And in one of the uh, sessions, a leader asked the attendees, uh, should the speeches of Elihu be trusted like the speeches of God, or should they be discarded like the speeches of Job's three friends? And he asked for a show of hands. Well, it turns out 
the show of hands was evenly divided. Now think about that. Every attendee there is committed to studying and preaching the book of Job. Every attendee there is is committed to the inerrancy of Scripture, yet there is basically a 50-50 disagreement on how to interpret the words of Elihu. Now, there's no doubt that Elihu is mysterious, right? You see, the three friends, we know them. Job calls them miserable comforters. We, We know that at the end of the book, they are going to be rebuked by God. So we know where to put them. But but how do we take Elihu? Should we, as we go into his theology, as we listen to his arguments, should we take him serious? Is he speaking the truth? Is he is he is he more aligned with the words of God? Is it or is he more aligned with those miserable comforters who call themselves Job's friends? So before we look at what Elihu says, I want to survey his theology. Does he have answers the others do not have? Well, I want to give you six reasons that I think the answer is yes. Okay? The first one is, I believe we should listen to Elihu because he really does say something new. When the words of Elihu are introduced to us, they're not introduced as a continuation or a repetition of what his three friends had said, but they really are introduced to us as something new. In fact, he will disagree with both sides of the argument. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Job 32, 6 through 15, it says this, So Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are very old. Therefore, I was afraid, and I dared not declare my opinion to you. But great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. Therefore, I say, listen to me, and I will declare my opinion. Indeed, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings while you searched out what to say. Now he, talking about Job, has not directed his words against me. So I will not answer him with your words. So twice there, he says, let me give you my opinion. And then at the end, he says, I'm not going to answer you with your words. In other words, I'm not going to say the same thing that you said. So the first thing we know about him is he really is going to come with a uh, with something new. The second reason I think we should listen to Elihu is the fact that he's given six chapter. Now, why do I think that's important? Well, Listen, as I said earlier, the inadequacy of the theology of the three friends was demonstrated by the fact that their speeches got shorter and shorter and shorter. And then by the time you get to chapter 31, they just stopped completely. In fact, Bildad, in in chapter 25, he only manages six verses. And when Zophar, it came his final uh, turn to to speak in the third round, he, he didn't even say anything, right? Now, with all of that, wouldn't it be strange if Elihu were given six chapters to say all those inadequate things all over again? I mean, that would just make no sense. We just spent chapter 40, chapter 31, and those guys saying that stuff over and over, and they're getting more hostile, and they're getting repetitive, and they're getting shorter. And all of a sudden, Elihu shows up and says the exact same things. That makes no sense. Surely the amount of space 
given to his word signals that something crucial is being said. The third reason I think that we need to listen to Elihu is Job's response. You know, Job never, uh, uh, you know, he never hesitated to argue with the other three friends. Yet, he will not try to rebut or argue with Elihu as he did with the others. And in fact, despite the fact that Elihu challenges him, in Job 33, uh, Elihu says this, Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. But Job doesn't. Um, and, I, and I think that is significant. The fourth reason I, I think we need to listen to Elihu is, the, is God's response. I mentioned in chapter 42, it says this, 42.7, After the Lord has spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, <clears throat> as my servant Job has. So, so God is going to rebuke Eliphaz, um, uh, Bildad, and Zophar, but he does not rebuke Elihu. Well, why? Well, the only explanation is that Elihu's words don't belong with them, that his words are, are different, that they speak rightly about God. The fifth reason I think that we need to listen to Elihu is it really is something helpful. Um, he, he does offer a new insight into the suffering of the, of the righteousness, and it is an insight that Job and his three friends seem to just have overlooked. Now, this brings us to the sixth reason, and I want to spend a little time here, and I've entitled this A Different Rebuke. You see, I mentioned earlier that a lot of people, as we saw at that pastor's conference, a lot of people put Elihu in the same boat as the three friends. They, they think he is just like them. Well, now, why would they think that? Well, the reason is because as you read through these chapters, many times he will draw the same conclusions about Job as the three friends did. For example, Elihu will accuse Job of finding fault with God. <clears throat> Job 33, 9 through 10. These, these are the words of Elihu. You say, talking to Job, I am pure without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. You say, Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. See, he's accusing Job of finding fault with God. He goes on later and accuses Job of speaking ignorantly. In 30, chapter 34, he says this, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. Chapter 35, Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies his words without knowledge. Later on, Elihu will accuse Job of actually putting God in the wrong. Job 34, 5 through 7, he says this, For Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. And then finally, Elihu just comes right out and accuses Job of sin. Job 34, 36 through 37. He says, Would that Job were tried to the end, because he answers like wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. 
He claps his hand among us and multiplies his words against God. Now, remember, Eliphaz accuses Job of sin. Bildad accused Job of sin. Zophar accused Job of sin. And now Elihu has done the same thing. Now, here's the problem. See, we as readers know that Job has not sinned. Remember the words of God early on. There's none like Job on all the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and turns away from evil. So if you just read through this very quickly, you'll see Elihu charging Job with sin just as the other three do. So a lot of people think, well, there you go. He must be wrong. It's, it's obvious he's, it's, he's just like them. Case closed. Let's discard what he says. But is that really how we should look at it? Let me, let me tell you a couple things about it and why Elihu is different. First of all, let me show you why Elihu's speech is not like the three friends, but let me show you why, first of all, it's like God's. Now, I've already mentioned that later on, God is going to clear Job of all charges. Remember, we read that in Job 42, where God said, My anger burns against you and your two friends, talking to Eliphaz, for you have not spoken of me as what is right, as my servant Job has. But you've got to understand, that is only after Job has repented. In Job 42, 3 through 6, Job says, Therefore I have uttered, and I've got those words underlined, I have uttered, I have said, I have stated things that I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. So Job repents in chapter... 42 but before he repents guess what god calls job a fault finder job 41 through 2 and the lord said to job shall a fault finder contend with the almighty uh in in job 41 through uh he also accuses job of speaking ignorantly the lord answered job out of the whirlwind and said who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge and in chapter 48 through 9, uh, he accuses Job of putting God in the wrong. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? So God says he's a fault finder. He speaks in ignorantly and he puts God in the wrong. Now, if you remember what we just talked about, those are the exact same things that Elihu says. So, so Elihu, when he accuses Job of those things, he's not saying anything that God will not say later on. So why is his accusation of sin different from the three friends? Well, here's why. Though their conclusion is the same, their arguments are completely different. You see, the three friends are concerning themselves with Job's hidden conduct, what he did to warrant or deserve such suffering. Their argument to Job is, before you began suffering, you must have done something wrong. You must have sinned, okay? And we know that's not true. But Elihu comes on the scene, and he doesn't concern himself with what Job may have done. He only concerns himself with what Job says. You see, Elihu's argument is this. Since you began suffering, you've sinned. Now, we can see the difference in the evidence that they bring. 
You see, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, they have no evidence. They only have presumption. In fact, they go so far as to make stuff up. In Job 22, Eliphaz says this about Job. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing. You have stripped the naked of their clothing. You've given no water to the weary to drink. And you've withheld bread from the hungry. Now let me tell you, that's not true. None of those things are, are true. They have no evidence of any sin that Job has committed. In fact, he was blameless. There, there was nothing for them to, to point to. Okay, that's So they just made stuff up. Elihu, however, he brings specific evidence to support his charges. And it has nothing to do with what Job did before he began suffering. It has everything to do with what he said after he began suffering. For example, Job 33, 8-12. He says this, Surely you have spoken in my ears. And I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure. You say, I am without transgression. You say, I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. You say, behold, God finds occasions against me. He counts me at his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my path. And then Elihu says this, behold, in this, the things you have said, you are not right. You see, in that one statement, Elihu puts his finger directly on Job's error. See, Job's error is sin that he repents for. It's not what he did before he began suffering. It's for the things that he says after he began suffering. You see, Job has focused too much on his innocence, and he has done so at the expense of God's grace and God's justice. His suffering caused him to say things about himself that are overly optimistic. And in doing so, he doesn't give God enough credit or enough glory. You see, even though Job is a righteous man, Job is not a perfect man. There was a sediment of pride that began to cloud the purity of his life when it was stirred up by suffering. Now, we know that Elihu is right about this because later Job is going to repent. And what will he repent of? Well, let's read it again. Job 42. Job answered the Lord and said, Therefore I have uttered, I have said things that I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. You see, confusion abounds over Elihu because a cursory reading makes us think, well, he sounds like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Therefore, he must be like them. But when we really dig into it, we see that what Elihu means by his conclusions is not what they mean by theirs. And it turns out that his speech will ring with incredible truth. So, with that said, now we know what the difference is. Now we know that we can trust Elihu's explanation of suffering. So what is it exactly uh, that, that he sees that Job and his three friends <clears throat> do not? Well, he explains his, his uh, uh, theology of suffering, if you will, in two places, and I want to I focus on, on both of those. The first is in Job 33, 14 through 19. 
So he says this in those verses. For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones. Now, Elihu here is describing two ways that God speaks to man. The first way is through his word. Now, you have to remember, these are the days before Scripture. There is no Old Testament. There's no New Testament. There's no Scripture at all. So the word of God would would take the form of visions and, and dreams. And we saw that in our study of Genesis. That's, that's how he would appear and speak to men. So today we have his word, of course, but then they, they didn't. So that's the first way that God speaks to man. Secondly, he says, excuse me, that God speaks through suffering. Now, why does God speak those two ways? What is God trying to accomplish? Well, he tells us this in Job thirty-three seventeen through 30. That he may turn aside, that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. You see, Elihu here does not picture God as this angry judge who's punishing people. He sees him as a redeemer, a savior, a, a rescuer, a physician, a doctor. The, the pain that he's causing is a, uh, is a rebuke, yes, but it's, it's, it's designed like a surgeon's knife. It's, it's, it's designed to turn people back from evil deeds. It's designed to, to get pride out of their life. So the pain he causes is like a surgeon's knife, not like an executioner's whip. In other words, God's purpose for the righteous in these dreams and in the suffering is not to punish, but to save. To save from, from maybe from evil deeds they're wandering into. To save from pride and ultimately to save from, from death. Now, the second place, which is even more specific... And the one I really want to focus on is Job 36, 7 through 10. Job 36, 7 through 10. Let's read that. <clears throat> Elihu says this, He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but they are on the throne with kings. For he has seated them forever, and they are exalted. Now watch this. And if they are bound in fetters, held in the cords of affliction, then he tells them their work and their transgressions, that they have acted defiantly. He also opens their ear to instruction and commands that they turn from iniquity. Now, let's read that again. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous. See, he's talking about righteous men. He's talking about believers. He's talking about sons and daughters of God. He's talking about Christians. Listen to how he describes them. They are on the thrones with kings. He has seated them forever. They are exalted. I mean, these are, these are children of God. But then he says this. If they are bound in fetters, if they are held in the cords of their affliction, it's because he's telling them their work and their transgressions that they have acted defiantly. He is opening their ears to instruction, commanding that they turn from 
iniquity. You see, once again, we're seeing Elihu's explanation for the suffering of the righteous. It is used by God to teach and to turn. It always reminds me of Psalm 119.71, where David said this, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. You see, that's what Elihu is saying. Affliction makes a righteous person sensitive to his sin. It may be a lot of sin, it may be a little sin, but it makes you sensitive to your sin, and it helps a righteous person hate their sin and renounce their sin. You see, there are dimensions of godliness that the righteous can only learn through affliction. Now, what's the central lesson that we've learned so far? The central lesson for us from the book of Job, now that's thus far, we're not done yet, is that the children of God will suffer. But when they do, it's not a punishment for sin. Let me, let me, let me just say this right here. If you are a child of God, any suffering you go through is never a punishment for sin. Never. Because Christ has already borne your punishment for your sin on the cross. It's already been paid for. It, it can be a chastisement. It can be discipline. It can be the loving hand of God, just like a father and mother discipline a child to, to keep them on the right way. But it's not a punishment. Christ has already borne the punishment for our sin. There is no double jeopardy in the kingdom of God. Listen, our Father in heaven has chosen us from before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians 1. He has justified us through the gift of saving faith. That's Ephesians 2. And he's now sanctifying us by his grace through suffering. And this suffering is not dispensed arbitrarily among the people of God. It is an individually designed expert therapy dispensed by the loving hand of the great physician. And what's its aim? Its aim is that our faith might be refined, our holiness might be enlarged, and our soul might be saved. And above all, our God might be glorified. Now, that's, that's what's taught so far. That is a central lesson in the book of Job. Unless you think, well, that's, are you saying, is that only taught in Job? I'm going to close with four scriptures from the New Testament. Four scriptures from, uh, from Peter, from Paul, from James, and from the unknown author of Hebrews. 2 Peter 1, 6 through 7. <clears throat> Peter says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer various trials. And he goes on to say, why are you suffering? So that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which though perishable is tested by, by fire, may redound to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 10 through 11. Our Father disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Now for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 2 Corinthians 1, 8-9, Paul says, We were so utterly, unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. 
Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And finally, from the book of James 1, 2 through 4, Therefore count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Next week, uh, we'll turn to our next lesson, God Shows Up.